Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Good morning, I'm Josie, a neurology trainee, and today I'm joined by Dr. Antonella Massarola, who is a consultant neurologist with a specialist interest in movement disorders. And today we're going to discuss deep brain stimulation in Parkinson's disease. And to support your understanding of Parkinson's disease and the basal ganglia, you may also wish to listen to other podcasts. We have one called Difficulty Moving and a patient presents with tremor. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Josie. It is my pleasure to speak with you today about uh, the brain stimulation in Parkinson's disease. And thank you for a nice introduction. Um, so today we'll just start first with a case. Um, so the case is of a 55-year-old gentleman who's right-handed and he has a diagnosis of idiopathic Parkinson's disease and he's been seeing in the movement disorder clinic. He was diagnosed seven years ago and has been on levodopa since. Initially, he had a good response to treatment, but for the past one and a half years, he's been increasingly struggling with motor fluctuations. This is impacting on his work as a lawyer. He's been referred for consideration of deep brain stimulation. He describes that about 60 to 90 minutes after taking his medications, he starts to, to develop troublesome career form movements. By the time medication wears off, he can be very rigid and can struggle with walking, particularly with his right foot becoming very dystonic. He has attempted to adjust his medications without good effect. He has tried adding amantadine, which made no difference, and he has been switched from cocarol-dopa to stilevo, although this made mild difference to begin with, he is now struggling again. Further details reveal that he has not had any problems with falls and there's been no cognitive symptoms. He has no significant depression or problems with his mental health. He has no other medical problems. So his current medications are Stilevo, and he takes um, 150, 37.5 over 200, three times a day. He takes a half Cinemat um, controlled release at night time and he takes Rapinarol four milligrams. Just, just to start off with, can you describe to us what are motor fluctuations? Yes, after a few years, usually between five and ten years, uh, some patients, but not all patients with Parkinson's disease, uh, started to develop uh, a period over the day where they uh, go on, so uh, the, the motor symptoms are treated by the levodopa or dopamine agonists, uh, but then after two, three hours, they go completely off, so they are like uh, without medication. This on and off, this going up and down with the motor symptoms like tremor, bradykinesia and rigidity is called motor fluctuation. Um, however, um, these patients, uh, I have to say, got quite severe motor fluctuation. Not all the patients uh, have uh, this uh, kind of a problem in this severity, but we have to highlight that this patient is a 55-year-old and got already a few past history of uh, Parkinson's disease, so it's a kind of young onset Parkinson's disease. This group of patients are the one with uh, uh, more probability to develop motor fluctuation, and I have to say also dyskinesia, that is another aspect of Parkinson's disease to consider with in, uh, uh, in patients on dopaminergic treatment. Okay, how can you treat motor fluctuations? In my clinical practice, I learned that at some point, instead of keeping increasing the levodopa that can trigger the dyskinesia, I usually start to split the same amount of levodopa 
in a smaller amount and more frequently over the day. And this is the best thing. And uh, if it's possible, then taking a dopamine agonist slow release like ropinirol in the morning. These uh, two kind of uh, ad therapeutic advice can manage the uh, motor fluctuation for a while. Although, on the other hand, this is a young uh, patient that uh, work as a lawyer, so taking so many tablets, so many frequent uh, over the day can be a problem. Okay, and so that kind of makes sense. So, you, yeah. so rather than just going for a big increase in the yeah. medication, dividing it up and spreading it out throughout the, the day might help control some motor fluctuations initially. Exactly, because I think the secret... Uh, to have a good uh, uh, patience with Parkinson's disease in the longer term that, that then can be eligible for the advanced treatment is to keep uh, each patient on the lower possible dose of uh, levodopa for the longest time possible. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and you mentioned a kind of key phrase, uh, advanced treatment in yeah. Parkinson's disease, and, um, and deep brain stimulation would count as one of those. Yes, uh, yes uh, Josie, the three... Um, uh, advanced treatment that we have available are deep brain stimulation, apomorphine and dodopa. I think in this uh, podcast we will focus on deep brain stimulation and uh, we can uh, speak on the other two in a different podcast because uh, the indication and contraindication can be slightly different. Excellent. So can you tell us what is deep brain stimulation? So uh, deep brain stimulation, as uh, the words say, is uh, a surgical procedure where uh, the neurosurgeon implants two electrodes, one in each side, on each side, uh, in the basal ganglia. For the Parkinson disease, the target is a subthalamic nucleus. For other movement disorder like uh, dystonia and uh, essential tremor or complex tremor. The target can be different. In dystonia, we use uh, uh, the globus pallidum internus, uh, the GPI. For uh, the complex tremor, uh, the essential tremor, we use uh, uh, the VIM, the thalamus. Uh, and again, in this regard, I have to say that for tremor, sometimes we don't implant both sides, but just one side uh, to control the most affected uh, side of the tremor. So it depends. Um, and how does it work? So basically the stimulation of uh, the neurons uh, uh, in the subthalamic nucleus uh, is kind of resetting the uh, neural pathway in the brain and can control the extrapyramidal symptoms, although the most important response we have with the resting tremor and then with the bradykinesia we don't improve much the rigidity as uh, the tremor and the bradykinesia. Uh, we have to say that is uh, not a cure, so we, what we are going to stimulate uh, are neurons that are going to be degenerated at some point. So as long as the neurodegeneration of the basal ganglia go over, then also the efficacy of the deep, deep brain stimulation goes down. So usually deep brain stimulation works very well for 10, 10, 15 years, but then we can see coming back the symptoms, not uh, because the deep brain stimulation is not working anymore, but because uh, the disease uh, is progressing. Which patients would you be selecting out of your clinic? Yeah, so the selection actually is the key point because uh, the neurologist needs to learn to select the best patients because you can have the best neurosurgeon, but if the selection by the neurologist 
is wrong, then the outcome will be really bad. So the selection is important. When uh, we select patients uh, with uh, motor fluctuation, for example, is an indication, or with the dyskinesia, so patients, for example, that have a still a good response to dopaminergic treatment, but they, have, they develop some kind of side effects from, by the dopaminergic treatment. Why this? Because uh, the answer of uh, the response to the dopaminergic treatment is a key for the good outcome. In other words, we need to do a levodopa challenge so we give to the patients a high dose of levodopa and we see if uh, he, she still responds to the levodopa because if he, she still responds to the levodopa yes we can implant but if the response to the dopaminergic treatment is already really low then we don't expect much benefit from the deep brain stimulation because this means that the degeneration is quite advanced okay yeah are there any other indications for it when you're looking in clinic? Uh, yes, when we have, a, for example, severe resting tremor where uh, the patient is still on high dose of dopaminergic treatment and the resting tremor is quite severe. Uh, and we cannot go really over a certain amount of dopaminergic treatment, so we consider uh, deep brain stimulation. It's important to say the timing. So now we know that we shouldn't wait too much to implant a patient. So if the patients, uh, indeed that there has been some studies called early STEM, uh, where it is a show that we shouldn't wait that the patient is quite advanced. So we call that this te um, therapy advanced treatment, but it is not anymore such applied for advanced patients. So, in, so as a as a movement sort of specialist, when you have these Parkinson's patients in clinic, do you have an idea, perhaps, about your patients, which you think, oh, maybe in a couple of years, yeah. you know, we'll we'll be thinking about deep brain stimulation for this patient. Exactly. So we need to wait at least four years from the diagnosis or the symptoms of the symptoms onset, because of the first four years are a window where we can understand if the patients is a really idiopathic Parkinson's disease or is a Parkinsonism because like uh, uh, supranuclear palsy or uh, multi-systemic multi atrophy or uh, uh, cortical basal degeneration, these are the three Parkinsonism that they don't have any response to the DBS. So we shouldn't implant, but at the beginning, all uh, they present together. So we wait uh, four years in average and then when we are sure the patient is progressing slowly, doesn't have an autonomic uh, manifestation that are more typical of a Parkinsonism, then we can think, okay, let's do the DBS. Okay, fantastic. What are the contraindications for deep brain stimulation? The main contraindications are three. So if the patient before the surgery has already balanced impairment, uh, with uh, quite few folds, uh, then this is a contraindication because the deep brain stimulation has a risk to make worse the balance and the gait. So if the patient starts already with problems at baseline, this is a quite a strong contraindication. Um, the speech, if the patient has already some dysarthria or slurred speech, then we should think about because uh, um, the DBS can make worse this issue. The third are cognitive and psychiatric comorbidities. If we have a cognitive decline at the baseline uh, or psychiatric comorbidities, quite severe depression, severe visual hallucination, then we should 
avoid to implant uh, the patients because the DBS can make worse the psychiatric comorbidity as well as the cognitive decline. I think that these three groups have been showed by recent studies that uh, they go together. So a patient with balance impairment and gait impairment is also the one with high risk to have a quite shortly cognitive decline and psychiatric comorbidities. So there have been few studies showing that. Okay, um, so they're the patients that you wouldn't be putting forward to have this have this procedure. Um, yeah. Okay. And what about the dysarthia? Does that tend to, or the speech problem? Does that tend to go in that category as well? Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. Also, but I have to say, although we, I spoke about three categories, then we saw that they start nearly at the same times so, mm-hmm. and they move together uh, in terms of progression. This is why. Uh, we go to the DBS pathway, how we select the patients. It's quite important. Yeah, so so can you tell us about that? So what does what does having it involve? Because it, I, I imagine it doesn't just involve the patient turns up to theatre, has it done, and then goes home. There's a there's a long process yeah. in patient selection and, and exactly. assessment. Exactly. The pathway pre-op is quite long because the patient comes and see the neurologist. Then if the neurologist thinks, okay, it can be suitable, then it needs to have a neuropsychological assessment with all the cognitive tests, the neuropsychiatric assessment by the neuropsychiatrist, uh, gait and balance assessment by our uh, physiotherapist with expertise in neuromodulation, and then with all of this information, the patient is discussed in the multidisciplinary clinic where there are other neurologists, the neurosurgeon, and then we make, a, we make the decision together uh, and then we the neurologist and the neurosurgeon meet the patients together explain that is she's suitable and then uh, the patient is in the waiting list okay and then when the patient say so the patient's been through that process they're suitable um, and they're, they're placed on the waiting list and they get called in what you know what happens to them in terms of the operation and the post-operative care do they go home straight away with the dbs switched on or does something else different in our happen? center what we do after um, the operation the, the implantation of the electrodes the patients go back home and then uh, come back usually after one, two weeks to have uh, the implantation of the battery. So we do in, uh, the neurosurgeons here uh, do the procedure in two steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the second step is to implant the battery, connect the electrodes to the battery, and, uh, uh, and then we turn on with a very, very low stimulation. And then the patient is back home for other four weeks. Then. Uh, the neurophysiotherapist and the specialist nurse uh, meet the patients after four weeks. So now we are six weeks, two plus four, six weeks after the operation, and then they start to slowly go up the stimulation. And if everything goes well, then the patient is booked in the neurology clinic, where the neurologist starts to go down, slowly down with the medication. So, so once the kind of stimulation is turned on and it's gradually increased, at that point you slowly reduce the medication. Yes. So it's a bit of a balancing act. Exactly. Okay. Why this? Because we need to reduce as much as possible the medication to keep like a fuel for the future. Mm-hmm. So to use the stimulation as much as much as much as possible for the longest possible time 
and then we will have medication to re- increase again in the future if you need. Okay, because then you've got that as a kind yeah. of backup plan. Yeah. Um, do, um, do many of your patients come off medication entirely? Some of them. Some of them can be even two, three years without any medication. Yes, it's a, small, it's a small part where we can stop completely the dopaminergic treatment. What we surely do for everybody, we try to come off dopamine agonists because as you know, dopamine agonists can trigger already by themselves, like impulsive control mm-hmm. disorder or visual hallucination. And together with the stimulation, these uh, kind of side effects can be uh, more, you know, at high risk, at high guess risk. Um, and then we keep in monotherapy the patients just with a small dose of levodopa, very small dose of levodopa. Okay. What happens long term with these patients? Do you see them regularly to check their DVSs? How does it work? So let's say that then the patients have been seen the neurology clinic uh, at least uh, uh, two, three times after the operation. We see every three months after the operation for two, three times. We keep increasing the stimulation, keep redu- reducing the medication. Then when it settle, uh, when the patients settle, we see every six months. Okay. And when, when you see them, what do you do? Uh, we usually check uh, uh, the battery for the patients that have the non-rechargeable battery that usually lasts for five years. But however, many patients now choose to have a rechargeable battery where they can recharge twice a week and they keep the battery for 25 years. So it's good because in this way they don't have to go to the theater again after five years to change the battery. It's a small procedure, but it's still a procedure that can make the patients at the risk of infection and things mm-hmm. like that. However, the younger patients prefer this instead of then keeping recharge the battery twice a week because it can be a bit uh, tough for a younger patient. Okay, how long does it take to recharge a battery? Uh, two, three hours. Okay, so, and does that involve them sitting yeah. sitting down in a specific place for a couple yes. of hours? Okay, I can see why younger patients might not like yeah. that as much. So as they say we prefer every five years to go to the theatre. Okay. But be free in the daily life. That's interesting. Yeah. What do um, the the patients know about their DBS and what, what kind of equipment do they have at home with them? Yes, um, here, our specialist nurse and our specialist physiotherapy prepare a leaflet complete with all the information that we give to the patients when we think it's suitable. Uh, so we provide quite a detailed leaflet to read about. Um, when they have the operation, then they have a tomb like um, a programmer that is uh, simple compared to the one that we have in clinic, but they can still check the battery uh, check the stimulation and uh, we give uh, usually when we program them we give a window to go up and down with the stimulation until certain amount of stimulation they cannot jump too high or too low we, we give a window and so they can uh, they can uh, play at home they call the helpline if they get a problem and then uh, we we advise okay you can use the window and go 0.2 milliampere up or 0.2 for example mm-hmm. milliampere down okay that's quite that's interesting to know so they do have a degree of control over yes. and and they have equipment with them yeah and i think that's probably quite important for non-neurologists to know about so if these patients present to the emergency department with problems with their dbs um then they've likely come with 
with their you know equipment and ability to check the the battery yes uh, the thing that can happen and actually happened during for example covid when some uh, appointment were in delay is that the patients with no rechargeable battery then uh, um, as a battery that needs to be changed so run out and so they presented to the ENE department uh, very scared because, for example, they started to have quite severe motor symptoms. Mm. But I have also to say that this happened okay, during COVID time, but uh, in the normal daily life, uh, the patients have an helpline number to call when they feel that something is wrong. Uh, and then we book straight away. So ideally, these patients should be just contacting yes. the centres directly rather than then rather than go going to, to these any places. Yeah, good. Okay. Um, can you tell me what what are the the risks of having deep brain stimulation? Yeah. Um, as a neurosurgical procedure in general, the risk, even if it's very low, are infection uh, due to the surgical procedure, bleeding of the brain, so a stroke. Um, post-surgical psychosis episodes. Uh, as a, a deep brain stimulation specifically, the most important risk is that uh, uh, in a small percentage of patients it doesn't work. So okay. we do everything, we select the best patients, the surgical procedure technically went very well, but uh, uh, we don't reach the, su- the success that we expected. So this is an important risk to explain to the patients because the patients needs to know that although, for example, in 80% of Parkinson's disease, we have a quite a very good outcome, there is a small 20% where the deep brain stimulation doesn't work as it should be. Do you have any other important points that you'd like to, to make about DBS in Parkinson's disease or other indications for DBS like tremor or dystonia? Yes, so... Uh, deep brain stimulation, I, I think, although is a technique now that uh, we know since 25 years ago, the procedure is still the same, but there has been quite uh, uh, a progression in the advanced electrodes with more quality or with different technology like uh, uh, multidirectional deep brain stimulation when we have electrodes that uh, they, they send the stimulation in different parts of the basal ganglia. So not in one direction, but in different parts. So with more control of symptoms and less side effects. Because yes, there are side effects also for the stimulation when we have, uh, we need to plan the right electrodes with the right stimulation because otherwise we can cause side effects like uh, dyskinesia or abnormal speech or gait problems. So these are the side effects we need to deal with uh, the stimulation. Um, so we need to plan the right electrodes in the right position that does, doesn't give these side effects. Uh, Technology-wise, it's important now uh, to know that there are different types of programming uh, um, of the, the deep brain simulation. So in the future, what the, the, the plan is to try to have a simulation that uh, change over, day, over the day to adapt to the activity of the patients. Regarding the other indication, uh, we use the brain stimulation for deep brain, from dystonia and for tremor, complex tremor. However, nowadays there are also some trials to use the brain stimulation for psychiatric, comorbid, uh, psychiatric disorders like Tourette, mm-hmm. uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, of course with a different target, not the basal ganglia, but I think it's a uh, kind of procedure that 
will be applied for many other diseases in the future. Fantastic. That's really excellent. Thank you so much for answering my questions today. Thank you, Josie. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk. Thank you.